Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. Coming. One of the commonest causes of death outside of gun shooting and violence uh, in, in the United States and actually the world. And uh, at one point, if you died from suicide, they wouldn't put it in the obituary because they didn't want anybody to uh, use that as a reason to commit suicide. But, uh, but as uh, we become more enlightened and as the stigma of suicide is becoming less, you talked about uh, the fact that uh, we're seeing suicide in the obituary more now than ever before. They wouldn't put that in the obituary, but now, now they are with the hope that uh, if you were thinking about suicide, you would get some help. And you have all these telephone numbers and everything else uh, that's available to you if you're thinking about suicide. But uh, it's an epidemic that uh, has worsened with the pandemic and uh, particularly is involving the younger people more so than uh, ever. And so that that was uh, one of the things they talked about. They also talked about something that we talked about at nauseum, and that, that is the uh, key habits that go along with long life. And... Uh, None of them are new to us. Not smoking, being physically active, managing stress, eating a healthy diet, having good sleep hygiene, avoiding binge drinking, and not being addicted to opioids, and finally having positive social relationships. We, we talk about that almost every session, but uh, anyway, it's interesting to see that featured in the, uh, the Washington Post, Eight Healthy Habits. Yeah. And there was also an article for you teachers uh, that uh, uh, talked about uh, uh, the fact that half of the children in the world have been abused and uh, that uh, uh, within a year of that abuse, they should uh, seek mental health or be given mental health because... Uh, this then results in mental health issues that are there for the rest of their lives. Uh, they don't talk about preventing the abuse, they just talk about the interventions that are necessary once you have been abused. And uh, uh, in, in our schools in the district, uh, do we have programs for those kids who uh, suffer from abuse? Many of your teachers have been your experience. I know they have school psychologists that um, can help individual students who are, are identified with uh, abusive. They can uh, do that. Yes. So, yeah. so every every child who associated that they identify uh, with uh, physical abuse, they. Uh, they have psychological support? Um, I'm saying that they have too many children and not enough workers. They have one psychologist for a school, even if it's 500. Even in high schools, they have it. 
but they have a lot more children that are abused. They have social workers and everything, and they're on. It's just too many caseloads. Um, not only in D.C., but in PG and all that. So um, I don't see how they're being supported. The groom. Any other? Uh, also, Dr. Callender, all the teachers in DCPS, at least, were, were given uh, training on being able to identify abuse when they see it. Because in, in the past, you know, like when I first started, when we first started teaching, we would see things but wouldn't recognize them as signs of, of abuse. But, um, you know, when, when children act out sometimes or, you know, are hiding uh, injury or, you know, you can see it on their face or um, we have to report th those things now. It is mandatory. You have to, uh, you know, make, keep a record of, of everything that you see. And uh, one thing you don't do is contact the parent. You go to, um, to the, to the system and uh, child protective services to uh, document all those, uh, uh, you know, signs of, of abuse now. The other thing is the um, counselors try to help when a student dies, you know, regardless of the way, you know, gunshot, uh, suicide, or it doesn't matter what kind of death the student had, but sometimes they close the school down, you know, for a day or something, but the psychologists are there and um, that's when they, Carol, that's when they bring a group in. They bring the psychologist who is the professional, and then they have teachers, uh, social workers, and they all gather and they go around to uh, classes and, you know, they have meetings and so forth. So, yeah, they do have psychologists trying to help out. I have heard it. I have never seen it in 47 years for it to happen. I, I know they said that's going to happen, but I've never seen it. Have you seen it, John or John? I've seen it where someone in the school dies and there's some kind of a memoriam or some kind of uh, uh, help from the psychologist, a meeting, a, a assembly or something. Like that, I've seen that. But I'm what saying is, I've never seen a group of people come into the building. It's uh, the it's the internal, yeah, mostly uh, the so the social workers at the building, and the resident psychologists and nurses, and anybody else come together to try to uh, counsel the students who have who lost one of their own. One of the areas that uh, may not show is sexual abuse. And uh, that's an area that 
uh, is tough to address because apparently the most common source of the abuse is the relatives. Uh, is that handled uh, any better now than it used to be? Because in the past it was ignored. Well, Dr. Callender, uh, my, my son is a fourth grade elementary teacher and he's he's come across students that have done drawings where obviously there was sexual abuse done to them. And, you know, so that gets turned over in, in regards to the parents also in the family. Yeah, a lot of a lot of violence is coming from the parents. And also a lot of these people are coming, you know, are coming into the country um, through other countries and along their path. They're getting abused. So, I mean, my, my son works in predominantly Hispanic, uh, black uh, elementary school. And there's a lot of, through the Hispanics, a lot of abuse. Uh, does he think that it is, it is handled well? What is his thoughts about, do you know? Well, I, I guess, you know, right away you uh, you you contact the administrator above him and, uh, you know, through uh, counseling, they start getting involved with it. So, yes, it doesn't get swept in any uh, underneath any rugs. That's good to hear. Mm -hmm. Because there's much evidence that uh, later on in life, they, they come up with a lot of... Uh, diseases, disease entities that occur as a consequence of the abuse that is not right. not handled early enough. Okay, I guess we can go to the first uh, article. <laughs> yeah, this uh, showed it reached an all-time high in 2022. Almost 50,000 people took their own lives last year. Uh, highest number ever, which is frightening. And uh, it hurts the most when it's the children, and uh, but it hurts anyway. It doesn't matter with adults or children, but it, I guess parents really suffer so much when it's their children. But you suffer whenever anybody dies like that. See many people fighting for life and then you see all these people killing themselves. Have you seen this in your 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 lives or is this just something that you see in uh when you read about? I, I, I had a student, yeah Dr. Calder I had a student uh, one of my junior high school students, I think I, I talked about it on a session before, who um, he came back while I was teaching. He was one of my outstanding band members, first trumpet player, and uh, came back several years after he graduated from from high school. He had a girlfriend that was pregnant, and she left him, and uh, 
he sat through band rehearsal and waited till everybody left and started talking to me about, you know, the situation, how upset he was. Two days later, he hung himself. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wish I had, you know, you, you have a, feel, a feeling of guilt. I wish I had been able to identify that and said something that might have changed his, his, his mind to, to take his life because he was he was brilliant uh he was handsome handsome young man gifted but this this is situation where you know uh, where he was about to be a father and the girlfriend broke up with him i mean it it was too much for him to handle Any other people associated with suicides? Um, Dr. Callender, there have been attempts to suicide uh, in my family. And uh, thank the Lord, they didn't go through with it. And they were able to recover, you know, like for instance, you know, some overdose on some pills or something, you know, your stomach can get pumped out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've seen these descriptions of what happens with these children. Uh, mm. Depression is often at the root of a lot of it. And uh, when people who are depressed take the medication, often they seem to be controlled, but sometimes when they stop taking the medications, that's when they commit suicide. Well, uh, well Dr. Callender, uh, years ago, my middle, my brother closest to me passed away and uh i hope it wasn't suicide i hope it was uh you know accidental drug overdose you know but there was a lot of things going wrong in his life that uh he just uh tried to medicate medicate himself yeah yeah so the emptiness and sorrow that goes along with his often unbearable for for many. And Dr. Callender, you've uh, said that, I didn't see it in this article, but during the COVID period, um, there was a slight increase in suicide. There was a tremendous increase in Black teen suicide. Yes. And uh, uh, so... Uh, this has contributed to the uh, to the suicide uh, epidemic as well. Loneliness and uh, uh, the isolation that goes along with uh, the pandemic. So uh, uh, socialization and the interaction is one of the best things you can do and have people talk about whatever's going on with them. And then you have all the suicide lines now that uh, 
open 24-7. Dr. Callender, which reminds me, my brother was bringing to me about having empathy. A lot of times, I even notice in school, even with family, even with the young people, they're talking about a breakup or something that I think is insignificant. But to them, it's very real. Like I had a young lady in the classroom and the kids were all empathetic with her and she had to go outside the classroom and cry because she just broke up with her boyfriend. To me, in my mind, I'm saying, what? Get back in this classroom. You know, <laughs> you know break it up. But to her, that's real. And you know, reading the articles, when people break up to you, it's no big deal, but to them it is. And no matter what their plight, of, if you think it's insignificant, all they need is someone to listen to them, be empathetic with them. But that's one of the hardest things for us human beings, especially if we have never felt that emotion or rejection or whatever they're going through. Like my mother got up this morning and started fussing at me and we're going, yeah, right. But to them, that is an emotional crisis. So uh, if we could just give people their listening ears, we may not feel it, but they're feeling it. And when it comes to depression, they're getting over depressed over things that we may never even experience or even think about that we've been through a lot of times. But it's being empathetic with that person. And that's one of the hardest things to learn how to do without acting fake about it. Uh, yeah, the one of the changes in our society is that uh, there's a book uh, by Ayn Rand that's kind of uh, the, uh, the hallmark of the right-wing society, and it talks about you know, the bootstrap theory, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, be independent, be self-sufficient, but anyway, it denigrates qualities such as compassion, being nice, considerate, kind. And so those things are out of vogue. We're not in a society where it's encouraged to be compassionate, kind, considerate to other people. Uh, they're called snowflakes if you're like that. And it's, uh, it's kind of unfortunate, but that's the direction that this country is going. Well, thank you for your comments. Uh... And it's in many ways, it's all about love and showing care and compassion for one another. Uh, because uh, just as Carol stated, uh, it's not what we feel, but it's what they feel. And, and, and at least we can give a listening ear, whether we uh, empathize or not, we can at least listen and try to help them as they go through the agony. Okay, any other comments? If not, uh, this is an interesting article that we read about all the time. My last comment would be, I guarantee most of these suicides, someone's been talking on Facebook or, or other, what, some other social media and and other their friends aren't recognizing that he's suicidal right now. You know, because chances are they're trying to like verbalize it first, and and you know the education of uh, teaching people how to recognize signs is paramount. Thank you. Uh, this is an article about people who are 
what they call super ages who were old, meaning over in 65. And the super ages they talk about over, over uh, 80. But uh, this study they're talking about over 79. So, uh, and uh, they're monitoring them to see uh, what, how they have managed to be over 79 and still have the same mentality and the cog cognition. And uh, he also did MRIs to identify uh, the gray matter and, and see if there was a decrease in the gray matter or increase. And uh, they then, after looking at this, they uh, tried to decide what, what made these people over 79 so different from uh, the other group. And, uh, these are, and they identified some of the things that we mentioned at the beginning of the program. Uh, and they talk about uh, physical fitness being important. <laughs> and we also, over the last couple of weeks, talked about how being physically fit helps with depression and, and anxiety and how exercise makes a difference. Also, uh, they didn't have genetic predispositions uh, to handle uh, uh, this. And they talk about the APOE 64 allele, which is thought to be associated with Alzheimer's. And they found that uh, uh, they didn't have that. Uh, but... Uh, uh, some of them did and some didn't, so that, that wasn't. And then, of course, uh, uh, mental function, uh, they, they still had their memories, which uh, uh, as many of the people on this program who are over 79 have. Uh, so that physical and mental function are closely intertwined, and the more active we are, physically and mentally, uh, the more likely we are to fit into this super ager group. Remember, we, we talked before that uh, uh, they expect when you get to be 80 that uh, uh, many people expect you're going to uh, drop out mentally and physically. Point of fact, uh, these people do not. They continue to be involved with athletics and uh, social organizations as well. Uh, I have a comment. Um, along with my uh, father, who was a, a senior athlete, you know, around the country, and uh, he was uh, almost four days from being 102 years old, but he was in a circle where they had different sports, you know, basketball, tennis, and different things that the super ages were playing. And I remember one guy who was a tennis player and he was still playing tennis at 100 years old. <laughs> and so I wanted to, Dr. Atto to know that 
he, he was, and he was still, I mean, he was still playing tennis good. He was still winning games. And so oh, my was, God. Yeah. And Mary Ellen, if you and I can find that CD. Yeah. Oh, I got it. You got it. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get it to uh, Dr. Atta. Oh, my God. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. Okay. I'll bring it with me. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, this is something that uh, uh, John Buchanan has been warning us about, uh, not about a new strain, but the fact that COVID is becoming more active. Here in D.C., of course, there's a, a new strain in Michigan, but uh, uh, what is clear is that uh, more and more cases of COVID are, are manifesting themselves and are requiring hospitalization. Uh, not as much as it used to be, but still more than it has been recently. So it's uh, important that uh, you be up to date with your vaccinations. Because even those people who are vaccinated get uh, COVID. And uh, of course, we now have medications uh, that are helpful. Uh, but all, all of these things have side effects. And so whether this variant that's reported in Michigan is going to be uh, a cause for uh, things to happen all over again remains to be seen. So time will tell. But one thing is clear is that the uh, COVID uh, is back again, uh, not as not as violent as it was before, but it's back again. I had a number of people, one of my doctors who, who come down with COVID over in the last week or so. But these are people who have been vaccinated. So, so they haven't required hospitalization, but uh, those people who are not vaccinated are likely to uh, require hospitalization. It may even die. I think the it is important for us to re recognize that uh, as we approach September and October, that the three vaccines that we need to have, the COVID, the flu, and the RSV vaccine. Uh, I think there are some people in this group who are part of the RSV study, but uh, uh, the RSV vaccine is now available for people uh, over three and uh, over 65. And uh, so when you get your vaccines, uh, you need to get three of them, uh, the COVID, the uh, RSV, and the flu shot. Any, any, any? I have a question. Yes. Can you get all three at the same time? Yes. Okay. Well, that's my plan. <laughs> Is the new COVID vaccine out now? The booster? It's probably not coming out until September. Mm -hmm. uh, so the uh, 
if you have not been vaccinated in the last six months, uh, I think within six months, you're protected. Beyond six months, we're not sure how long that protection will last. It is expected that the uh, COVID vaccine that you get this September will uh, last for a year rather than six months. Now, the only group that we're not clear on is the immunosuppressed group. Patients who've been transplanted or cancer therapy or other therapies. Uh, they, they still uh, uh, do not have the uh, immunity uh, that uh, uh, people who are not immunosuppressed have. So so it's it's important for that group to keep up your uh, vaccinations. Dr. Connor, this is Sylvia. For getting the vaccination in September, <clears throat> have they developed is it a new Pfizer, Moderna, or did they say? Say again. I don't understand your question. <clears throat> I said, is the new uh, vaccine Pfizer, Moderna, or or it, which one is it? I don't know. I don't know which one, uh, so I don't know. I guess when they, when it comes out in, in, in September, they'll be able to tell us, but they haven't uh, uh, told us that. It sounds like Pfizer, uh, it's, what does it say that? Uh, uh, but it say it could be, but it's not authorized yet, so. Uh, yeah, Pfizer should be. Ready by the end of August. Yeah, it should be. So, but they will announce it. They'll announce it. Okay. Thank but you. remember, uh, September is only 10 days away. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. So. And um, I'm going to try to get my mom. Um, she has a medical appointment in September to see if she can get all three, and she's 92. Yeah, right. <laughs> The uh, RSV is the one that we didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So this is brand new. And uh, uh, this is uh, something that uh, we need to take advantage of. I know that CVS is offering the flu shot and the COVID shot for free. I haven't heard anything about the RSV shot yet. Right, the RSV is available though. Uh, that might be free, also. I don't. Know. But don't we want to wait for the new updated version in September? The RSV just came out. They never see the difference between the other vaccines is they are already out. RSV has just been approved by uh, CDC uh, in August. Yeah. If John had mentioned that CVS was offering the COVID, I'm saying you don't want to take it at CVS now until the new version comes out in September? No, it depends upon whether you have updated. Because okay. if that's why I made the point about how long ago did you get your vaccine? Mm -hmm. If you have a COVID vaccine in the last six months, then you're straight. But if you haven't, then that's another story because you're... I over okay. six months. So look at the date of your last vaccination. 
And yeah, if mine it's, is uh, scheduled for September because it was last April. Or oh, April so this, this year. I mean, this April. Yes. Yeah. So you're you're straight. I, yeah. So you you wait for for September. You take the the uh, vaccine that will give you uh, twelve months coverage. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, I'd wait for that since you already you, you May, June, July, August, September. So you're good. Yeah. It says you can get the. Uh, the shots for free if you have insurance. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a trick, but I don't know. Well, actually, uh, as you know, that uh, that uh, was covered by the president, so that uh, uh, whether you have Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, CBS is giving it to you for free. I think I saw one line where they didn't advise you getting all three at one time. Now, I know like the shingle shot, and I'm glad I was advised not to get that at the same time as I got the COVID shot because the shingle shot, the side effects killed me. And I'm really hesitant about getting the second one. But, um, Really and truly, can you space them out or something like that? Well, for shingles, shing, you're right. I think your observation is correct. The shingles is different from the the uh, three that we talked about uh, because we talked about the three of COVID, RSV, and flu, which is uh, different from the shingles, which is uh, uh, different. So, yeah, you can space them out as you like, though. No, it, it isn't mandatory that you get all three at the same time. You can hey, take no matter time. what, you got to get stuck three times, right? They can't put it all in one vial and just give it to you once. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. I, I think we'll get to that point, but we haven't gotten there yet. Now, what? Remember, only seventeen percent of Americans have gotten the six uh, shots that uh, go along with the booster. So that there's only seventeen percent that have actually taken advantage of it. So many are not up to date with the COVID shots, and the RSV is brand new. So. Of that 17%. I'm sorry? I said, I'm part of that 17%. Yes, no mind. Someone sounds like they're outside. Can you mute your phone if you're outside? Because we're getting feedback. And some wind. That's John. <laughs> okay. So any other comments or questions about the fact that uh, these boosters are available? Now, this article uh, <laughs> is an interesting article that suggests that you get the booster the same arm as your uh, last COVID shot. Well, 
the data suggests that that's an issue. Uh, have any of you changed arms or you get it all of it in the same arm? Mine's in the same. I don't yeah. Mine in the same arm. I have to do it because of the um, breast cancer stuff. I can only get it in my, my um, right arm. Right. It's within my left breast. Good, good, yeah, good. Makes sense. Well, I think it's a moot point, uh, but it, it does make sense to get in the same arm if the studies suggest that it's the case. And the fact that it's a small study means it's really not that generalizable, but uh, but it's a study nonetheless. That's something that I'm going to have to think about, Dr. Callender. Um, I mean, which arm? Yeah, because oh. um, I think the uh, the uh, pacemaker procedure was on my left side and the stent procedure was definitely on my right side. Can you get okay. vaccinated in another area? Can you get vaccinated in a leg or anything, Dr. Callender? What's the question? I said, can you get vaccinated in an area other than the arm? Yeah, you can, yes. Okay. It's just that the arm is easy to do and you don't have to undress. Uh, whereas, but yes, you can. Yeah, I was thinking about John's question. He was talking about he had to think about whether to get the shot. No, he doesn't have to think whether he gets shot. Which arm is going to take the shot? That's what he's thinking of. You can also get it in your butt. Yeah, you can. You have to pull your pants down. Yeah, that's the difference, yeah. Yeah, you have to undress for that one. Yeah. At least half. But, but um, the uh, pacemaker and the uh, stent uh, really are in different locations because the stent is at the wrist, right? Yeah, it goes from the wrist all the way up. Yeah. Right, right. So the, it's, the arm is not... Uh, uh, affected by that. Now, this is an interesting article about the this guy who had a uh, damage to his eye, corneal damage, and they used uh, stem cells from his other eye to uh, grow back his uh, cornea, mm. and uh, it was very successful. It's interesting how stem cells are and regenerative medicine are becoming uh, more and more available. Uh, and this is a, a novel stem cell treatment, which they took his own uh, limbal epithelial cells and uh, grew them and then uh, put them back in. And uh, it's, it's very it's wonderful to see how uh, science is advancing and uh, 
how this made a difference for this gentleman. Of course, the fact is that stem cell transplants uh, uh, are the regenerative medicine of the future, while xenotransplants, which we talked about last week, are important. Still, stem cells also loom large in our future. So stem cells regenerating uh, organs and other tissues is something that is likely here to stay. Mm. It's amazing though, how these things uh, The wonders of corneal transplant, we have one of our surgeons actually who, who uh, has had a corneal transplant maybe about 20 years ago. And he's operating every day. Aratoconus is the commonest reason why you require a corneal transplant, but damages like this, to the cornea can also uh, be a reason for uh, corneal transplantation. So, uh, Dr. Calendar, it, it's my understanding, it might be limited, that they'll, they'll take his stem cells out and grow them outside of the body and then replace them back in? Is That's that what he did in this case, yes. So, my, my concern, you know, I, I don't know why I always look at the negative, but when when you do that, it's got to be sterile, got to be ultra sterile because you know absolutely, you know you you're you're exposing the those cells to to the air and dust, well, all, all kind of stuff could happen. Well, it's not really. I mean, it, as you mentioned, it has to be done under sterile conditions. Period. Very sterile conditions. So that uh, it's not left actually to the ear. It's uh, actually done, done under uh, situation where they actually have uh, it under a, uh, a special area that is designed for this. Okay. So it's not. So it is an absolute sterility, as you as you mentioned. Yes. Oh, the air is filtered and everything. Yeah. So you remember Dr. Hurd that talked to us, he had done corneal transplants before. My uh, my classmate from Notre Dame that spoke to us. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And but actually, Bob. He, he didn't use stem cells. He used actual donated corneas, I believe. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. And they are preserved. And, and uh, I think Bob Copeland... Uh, who was our corneal transplant surgeon, uh, did about 40 to 50 a year for a while. Wow. And they're so successful. It's uh, upwards of 90 to 95% successful. Okay. Uh, this is a statement that uh, may be thought to be controversial. But uh, 
the fact is, and, and the data is incorrect. I mean, uh, you know, when you you when you write these papers, you should at least try to find out accurately. We did forty thousand kidney transplants last year. Mm. So this says twenty five thousand, which is uh, way off. Uh, but the point is that. 17 people die every day because of the shortage of donors. And so uh, the fact is that everybody can't be transplanted. So why not have an artificial kidney that can be implanted? Uh, and so, uh, yes, this could be the future because most people on dialysis are not transplanted. And some, many of them are not even candidates for many reasons. Mm -hmm. And so the wisdom of having an implantable artificial kidney is a very great idea. And so uh, this is uh, something that is likely to come to pass within the next five to 10 years. And the difference between the artificial kidney is that uh, dialysis, as you will know, is uh, four, four to six hours a day, three times a week for hemodialysis. Mm -hmm. Now for perineal dialysis is eight hours uh, every day. And that's different. And so uh, the idea that you have a, a artificial kidney that uh, works all the time is an, an improvement over hemodialysis. So uh, Inventing a, a, a membrane that is like the healthy kidney uh, that uh, works all the time is something that has not yet been developed, but uh, is something that could uh, uh, could work. Doctor Calendar, we talked about an implanted pancreas earlier, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yes, so now we're talking about implanting a, a kidney, artificial kidney, uh, which you wouldn't need immunosuppression or uh, anything either. And hopefully uh, you wouldn't need anticoagulation either. But it's gonna take a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it, it has not yet been done. It's just the thought that this is something that can be done in the future for people who can't be transplanted. Dr. Keller, what kind of material would that artificial kidney be made of? How would they make it? I don't know what kind of filter they're talking about. They didn't identify in this article what kind of filter they're talking about. Uh, and I and I think there's a reason for that because <laughs> they want to be the first to do it. Mm. But, but uh, um, as you can see, they haven't haven't started it yet. But uh, it would have to be a, a, something that allows the good blood to to the the bad blood to be filtered out and and the, good blood to be 
returned. So maybe some type of uh, uh, 3D printer? Possible, yeah, they mentioned that as a, as a possible way of doing it, yes. But since they haven't actually done it yet, it's conjecture. But it, it is something that uh, is, is possible in the conceivable future. Uh, because uh, the real issue is developing, as you mentioned, a filter that filters the poisons out and, and it allows the uh, the good blood to, to stay in. So potassium and uh, phosphorus and other things would need to be eliminated because those are the, the things that accumulate and uh, cause the uh, symptoms of uremia, which uh, is what uh, in, the down, in the long run uh, causes the patients to uh, decrease in their ability to function normally. Any other questions about that uh, radical uh, statement about the artificial kidney. Mm -hmm. uh, one size doesn't fit all in blood pressure measurements and that's uh, very true because if you have somebody who's very large, they need to have a large cup. Have somebody very thin, you need to have a relatively thinner cup. And if you don't, the uh, results will be inaccurate. But in particular, the, especially for the very large patient, uh, they need to have a, a large or even extra large cuff. Otherwise, they will be, uh, you get results that would make you think they have hypertension, when in point of fact, they don't. Often we don't talk about the fact that uh, when you take blood pressures that you need to have the patient to have them rested for about 15 to 20 minutes and uh, often people get their blood pressures taken when they haven't uh, sat down and, and relaxed for a significant period and that is one of the reasons why white coat hypertension is thought to be a problem and why the best blood pressure is the one you may take at home when there's no pressure around you and why you relaxed. Uh, Doc, but, what, what about your diet? Do you suppose if you just had lunch with a lot of uh, potato chips and french fries and soda and coffee, then you get your blood pressure taken. It's going to be higher? Yes, it would be. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, that's correct. It would be uh, so, uh, and and that's why uh, it's better for you to take it at home when uh, everything's stable. With the diet like that, your blood sugar would be high too. Not the home, yes. 
Dr. Callender, is there a difference in taking it with the wrist cup or or oh. a cup on your arm? No, it, it no it should not be uh, because uh, you use a different size cup for each. There'll be a different size cup for the wrist, different size cup for the uh, antibrachium. I think we we kind of talked a little bit about this uh, <laughs> uh, last week because uh, we talked about isometric exercises. Uh, it's interesting to talk about the wall squat. Uh, uh, and remember, we we had a feature of showing uh, Dr. Ivy with the hand squeezer and Tatum and Buchanan showing the ball that they squeeze so for isometric exercise. But it is a little surprising that the most effective uh, exercise in lowering blood pressure was isometric uh, exercise. And uh, the difference, of course, is that uh, isometric exercises are exercises where the, the joint is not... Uh, above and below are not uh, involved. And so you have one uh, area. Now the wall squat uh, is the most effective individual exercise. Uh, and it's an interesting one in which uh, not too many people do. And it's, uh, it only lasts two minutes. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I don't know how many people do the wall squat. But that was thought to be the most effective. But I think my wife does that. But it's uh, you see somebody do it's pretty looks pretty easy. When you try to do it yourself, it isn't quite that easy. But in the final, yes, this is Carol Tatum. Uh, I was doing planks. And I did more of them every time we talked about planks on the group session. And I just realized um, that it's been triggering my ulnar nerve entrapment. Um, that's my funny bone. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when I do planks, I just put pillows under my elbows and it's fine. Oh, okay. That works? Yep. How often do you do the planks? I like to do them daily, several okay. times a day. How long do you hold it for? Uh, well, I was showing off for Carol and John last night, and I did it for uh, two minutes, 12 seconds. Okay. Interesting, uh, the role of nitric oxide in lowering the blood pressure. Now, the, the reason that there's so much discussion about uh, blood pressure is because hypertension and diabetes are 
are three to four times as often as common in blacks and whites. And uh, it is the leading cause, they're the leading cause of kidney disease and heart disease and uh, strokes. So keeping your normal blood pressure is something that is critical to longevity. Now, this is an article a little scary in the sense that uh, finding more cancers among younger people, although we recognize that it's commoner in older people, but we're now finding that people younger than 50 are having increased risk of cancer as well. And that's why many of the screenings are done at a younger age than we were doing before. And uh, the, the, the thought is that the obesity, alcohol, smoking, and other environmental factors uh, play a role in younger people having cancer. This is one of the things, I guess, that uh, Dallas talked about in terms of things that we're exposed to in our diets and in our environments that are making it more likely for younger people to have cancers. Interesting that the biggest increase was uh, in Asian Pacific Islanders and Hispanics. Dr. Count, I have a message for Janet Stevenson. Uh, she says, I won't be able to log on today. I've mentioned my brother-in-law during past meetings waiting for a kidney transplant patient having problems with fluid buildup in his stomach. Recently, his heart stopped for 25 minutes. They brought him back to life. He is quite serious now. I've been sitting at the hospital with my sister. Please keep him in prayer. <laughs> Thank you. What's his name? What's his name, John? Uh, she didn't say what his name. Her brother-in-law. Mm. They're wow. at the hospital now. And she's uh, comforting her sister, you know, who's married to him. Yeah, okay. Thank you, and we'll keep him in prayer. Well, anyway, it's important to let your grandchildren and children be aware of the fact that uh, the age range for uh, screening is going down to 45. Of course, that doesn't mean that you can't get cancer under 45, because we have people who are in their 25s and 30 who get cancer. But, uh, but formerly it was actually 50. Uh, Dr. Yonder, how how common 
is breast cancer in males. Very uncommon, but uh, it does occur. And uh, if you have any pain in the in the breast or you feel your breast and there are any lumps, it's important to go to the doctor and get it, have it uh, mammogrammed and, and biopsied. Because it is, it is a, a cancer uh, that uh, is uncommon, but occurs in men uh, as well. I have a friend who uh, had cancer, breast cancer, and was treated. He's doing well. The early diagnosis is very important. So it can be treated before it spreads. It's killing so many of our women, it's uh, frightening. A couple comments. Uh, John, did your friend have to have a mastectomy? No. And the next comment. I if he had cancer, uh, he didn't have a mastectomy? Because he didn't do it. Okay. Because usually they do. Yeah, I don't think so. And the other question, Dr. Calder, you know, we talk about a lot of different diseases in our group session. And the one that we talk about for family history is cancer. Is that correct? Yes, uh, well, there, there are many tests that demonstrate that it's a genetic, uh, it's transmitted genetically and that you have a genetic predisposition to cancer. <clears throat> so yes, it is a, a family, family history becomes very important in diagnosis of cancer. Mm. Whether it's breast cancer or ovarian cancer, cancer of any type, uh, it's important to do genetic testing to see if other family members are likely to be exposed to the possibility of cancer and therefore doing whatever is necessary, even sometimes prophylactic surgery, is necessary to, to uh, prevent people from getting cancer later on in life. And so genetic tests can be helpful in uh, what, finding out whether or not you are likely to develop cancer later on. If one family member has it, then genetic testing of that person can give give you uh, information that will allow you to know whether other family members need to be tested for that gene. Yeah, and my point is that it sounds like it's more so with cancer than other diseases that we've talked about. Yes, that's correct. What about and diabetes? Diabetes is also a family uh, disease. That also, that also is, is, is just that uh, cancer is more has, has a higher mortality rate uh, in the short run. Diabetes is uh, a disease that is associated with a family uh, as well. But uh, it's just that cancer is uh, associated with a higher mortality rate. But uh, that's not saying that diabetes is not a, uh, a deadly disease. It is if it's not. The difference is, at least with diabetes, you can uh, manage it. And uh, the complication rate, if diabetes is controlled, is 
is effectively reduced. Whereas with cancer, the mortality rate is pretty high. And uh, so often, <clears throat> if you have a genetic predisposition, it may be that you may have what is called a prophylactic uh, uh, removal of an organ, uh, whether it be the ovaries or the breast or whatever, uh, to prevent you from getting uh, cancer. And this is something that is we've just been talking about for the last 10 or 15 years. Getting the genetic test to, to find out uh, whether or not you fit into the category that requires uh, removal of the ovaries or other body parts that may turn into cancer later on. This is an article that talks about uh, the role of vegetarian diets, diets in decreasing the likelihood of cardiovascular disease. And it's not something that we're not aware of, but it's something that to remind people that uh, diet means everything. And uh, doing away with obesity and uh, uh, decreasing, uh, eliminating smoking and other things, uh, uh, it's one of the better ways to control uh, diseases, cardiovascular diseases, and especially diabetes. And then, of course, the uh, hypercholesterolemias that are associated with uh, with heart attacks and uh, kidney disease and strokes are are optimally treated by vegetarian diets. So, uh, vegetarian and vegan diets uh, alike. Uh, uh, including uh, the processed foods, uh, certainly, especially processed meats, are good ways of uh, making you healthier. And this 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 article points out the many ways in which vegetarian diets help people live longer lives. And especially lower blood pressure, normalizing blood sugars, and uh, reducing the medication that you take, whatever you have. Hypertension, hyperglycemia, and dyslipidemia is all part of the uh, ways in which uh, Disease entities can be uh, handled easier, especially cardiovascular diseases. Now, this day, and they were talking about the fact that all uh, vegetarian diets aren't healthy, but uh, but most of them provide health benefits. Uh, Dow, do you know much about tempera vegetables? Uh, yeah. 
It's a soy product. Okay. Do you use them at all? Uh, no, I don't. I try to avoid soy whenever possible. I see. Okay. Okay. Any comments about this? Because I think that uh, most of us recognize the the value of uh, vegetarian diets. And then this is an article that talks about plant-based or animal-based diets, which is better. And uh, I think most of the uh, data supports uh, plant-based diets. Few would suggest uh, animal-based diets, but but there are uh, healthy animal-based diets as well, but uh, most of the data supports the plant-based diets as being the ideal. Any comment about this uh, in terms of uh, anybody who, who uh, disagrees with the? Well, I'm just uh, curious, doctor. I'm curious, uh, and Dale's probably really knowledgeable about it. Uh, Dale, why do you avoid soy products? Oh, okay, because it's a hybrid vegetable. Uh, there's two types of hybrids. There's natural occurring hybrids. Uh, like say an, an example of that is just about any apple that you buy. Uh, mm -hmm. Apple genes combine with different variants and that's a natural occurring hybrid vegetable. Fine, never a problem with apples. But there's a lot of uh, man-made hybrid vegetables which are uh, created, well, by man, but for certain purposes to make them more uh, resistant to different, you know, attacks that vegetables could get. Uh, uh, insect attacks, um, right? You know, greater yields, and so generally, when man makes a hybrid, uh, it it doesn't digest as well uh, by the body. Mm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, they single that out. I I wondered why they single that out as well. If you do a search on uh, man-made hybrids. You'll come up with things like cauliflower, broccoli, soy, uh, let's see, almonds. Uh, but there's there's a long list of, of hybrids. Uh, if you if you're really sensitive to to your um, gut digestion, you'll recognize uh, what things uh, you know. And it's very slight difference, but it count. It all counts. Uh, you know, hybrids. Um, they don't digest as easily. You know, one of the things that, uh, like, say, for broccoli, you know, there's a there's broccoli flatulence. Some people counteract that by putting cheese on the broccoli, but um, if you eat a a non-hybrid diet, you'll you'll recognize how little flatulence your body has. Uh, you know, flatulence is one of the common reactions to eating hybridized foods. Okay. Uh, 
think this will be the last one because uh, it's 1025. We're going to leave it at 1030. Uh, this is interesting because uh, uh, in Tampa Bay, uh, they found more bacteria in the beaches, which is uh, a new bacterium in the warm seawater because it requires salt to live. Uh, this is uh, something that's occurred in in Florida that hasn't been uh, reported elsewhere. And this uh, vibriosis is uh, uh, associated with more infection and uh, death than anything else. And so, so we're not in Florida, but uh, uh, and and, uh, and there isn't any evidence that. Uh, this occurs here in in, uh, in the Maryland uh, area. Now, those who eat raw undercooked oysters and shellfish can also get this. But um, are there many of you who like uh, raw oysters or shellfish? Yeah, I like sushi. I like uh, oysters on the half shell. Uh, not not sashimi though. That's raw um, fish. I, I avoid that. But yeah, I like sushi. Mm -hmm. So it, it just says it, it's more common in, in in the in the raw. Dr. Callender, this is Sylvia. My sister-in-law had some type of flesh-eating bacteria that got to her shins. I mean, it really took it down to the bare bone almost. It's been treatment for a while. It's, her skin is healed, but it took a, lo took a lot out of her and took a lot of treatments um, to get her a cure. And she lives in Florida. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did, did she find out how she got it, Sylvia? No, no. I thought maybe she was in the water or something, but, you know, it, we didn't do too much conversation about it. Um, you know, she that, was... That, that's interesting, yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yes. Yeah. There's is, one is, more is, short it, article. Huh? There's one more short article. Okay, all right. Yes, uh, this is something that uh, Known caller. that uh, actually John Buchanan has talked about before and how that sunscreens uh, are important in terms of protecting us from ultraviolet rays. And uh, the type you use varies. And uh, with extreme heat, the uh, the type of uh, sunscreen you may use may be different. Now, as we're having extreme heat in uh, the middle states, uh, I was noticing that almost all the middle states had temperatures of 100 degrees or above. And so when you're out in that kind of heat, it's important to have sunscreen on. And of course, it's important to wear sunglasses because ultraviolet rays are damaging. Now, uh, 
John McCann, you have any more comments about sunscreens? Well, uh, yeah, there's a couple of issues. One is that uh, there are a couple of uh, environmentally friendly sunscreens. When black people put them on, they they look like ghosts. You know, it's like a white coating over your black skin or your brown skin, which, you know, really looks dumb, but uh, it protects the coral. Um, the, the other issue is that if you're out on the water, like fishermen or divers, even though divers might have a, a wetsuit on, when you take that wetsuit off, you're exposed to direct sun plus reflected sun off the surface of the water. So you definitely need sunscreen to keep you from getting uh, cancer, sunburn. You know, sunburns can turn into skin cancer. Um, but if you use um, certain uh, sunscreens, they have chemicals in them that actually kill the coral. So try to look for environmentally friendly sunscreen. How do you recognize them? Um, it it should say on on the on the container, really. Uh, and I'm not sure the name of the of the chemical, but it's some, something like oxybenzene, something like that, um, which is you know common to almost all of the you know sunscreens prior to maybe five or six years ago. Um, once they figured out that that chemical kills coral and you know coral is is the foundation of our, our fishing industry you know the little fish eat the coral and medium-sized fish eat the little fish and big fish eat the medium-sized fish and then we eat the medium-sized and big fish you know so without the coral we we won't have any more fish so something to be aware of. Okay. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Uh, so that ends it for today. Yeah.